Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. The power of focus in life is an amazing thing, isn't it? I experienced uh, the power of focus in a very tangible way in fourth grade. I went from being able to see very clearly to having really thick lenses and not being able to read a book or see the board. In fact, I remember uh, playing football on our neighbor Bertha's lawn one day. Bertha had the nicest lawn for fourth graders to play football on in the whole town, and she happened to be gone that day, and she didn't normally allow us to play on her lawn, so we were having fun. But I can remember the ball flying at my face and realizing, you know what? I can't see this thing anymore. That's one power of focus. We've all experienced another power of focus issue in our life, too, when we've gone through major change. We've gone through pain or loss or something dramatic in our life, and it leaves us unsettled. We have a hard time orienting ourselves, understanding life and where we're to go in that moment. And we can all relate to that as well at some point in our life, although for most of us that doesn't happen on a regular basis, and so it's a little bit disconnected as well. I think the most threatening thing to our focus in life is simply the fact that we live life in such a busy world and the busyness takes over, the, it, it just grabs us and we get caught up in the whirlwind of doing whatever's in front of us because there are always so many demands and we don't even fully recognize the blurriness that's come to our life as a result. You've all heard of Tony Robbins. He says this. He says, one reason so few of us achieve that what we really truly want to in life is that we never direct our focus. We never concentrate our power. Most people, he says, dabble their way through life, never deciding to master anything in particular. Ralph Marston, a popular motivational blogger, writes, the direction of your focus is the direction your life will move. So he says, be intentional about that. Let your, let your focus be towards the good, the valuable, the strong, the true. Anne Voskamp, a, a writer of an amazing book called One Thousand Gifts, says simplicity is ultimately a matter of focus. And while Robbins and Marston and Voskamp all have some really fantastic lessons to teach us about focusing our goals, God invites us to start off simply by learning to quiet ourselves, to be still, and remember the simplicity of what I think is communicated to us through the core verse of this series we're in on purpose in Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us. That word handiwork is the word poema in Greek and it's God is creating you into a beautiful poem. He's creating into you into a work of art. And part of that beauty He's creating in you is all these wonderful good works He has planned for you to enjoy in your life in advance. Now, we've been looking at this whole idea of purpose over the last number of weeks by looking at our past. Today, we're going to transition. We're going to start looking at our, our present and our future. And today, as well, is, again, a Q&A's message so that if you have a question at any time, I forgot to do this earlier, Jacob, if you can throw that up, you can log into the Cafe Wireless to interact with us. And you can t- go to questions.gotoquest.org, and you can submit it a question at any time, and there will be a panel of three of us at the end of the message who will uh, address a few of those questions. So uh, feel free to do that at any time right now. As part of our leap of faith that we've been taking over Lent as well, 
We're going to send out a tip each week, and this week's tip is going to be asking you to begin to define that present and future for you through a personal calling statement. Now think about those three words. It's going to be personal. So it's going to define, it's going to have to express who you are uniquely and who God has made you to be and is making you to be. It's a calling, and it's not something that you make up. It's something that God is inviting you to do. And therefore, since He's inviting you to do it, it's something that all of His power, His leading, His resources are behind you to accomplish that. And it's a statement. It's not a suggestion. This is something where we drive a stake in the ground. It's the focus point for what we bring to life and what we have to give to others uniquely in our life. And sure, our lives will have many things come along that we'll do. And some of them will be distractions that we need to say no to. And some of them are simply things that we get to be a part of. But this personal calling statement is the focal point. It's the, it's the tip of the spear of moving forward with God in your life. And we sometimes make it really complicated. But the purpose of today's message is, is to make that a little more simple. Because in reality, making a huge difference for God is really quite simple. But as Voskamp said, simplicity requires focus. And if we focus on two things, it becomes simple. One of them I alluded to and spoke about just a little bit last week, and I'll remind you of it briefly, that the good purpose God calls us to is not a destination. It is a daily multiplying of something good in other people's lives. And you see, when we lose focus of that and we start making purpose all about goal setting, all about defining a destination, then we end up in our lives being focused on all these goals and all these steps to get to those goals and we become naturally workaholics because none of us can stand not getting to that destination. We want to be there sooner rather than later, right? And so we all drive ourselves and we can never get enough done during a day. Or we get disillusioned with it and we give up. Instead, God wants us to live from this place of rest that Jesus himself talks to us about. He invites us to in Matthew 6.34. He says, Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, the point Jesus is making is not to diminish the idea of setting goals or planning. I mean, the Bible is very clear that a wise person will set, will learn the habits of setting good goals and disciplining themselves in that way. But the point of this passage Jesus is talking about is that we're supposed to be able to trust God to lead us into that right path, those right steps, and we can live, therefore, in the present with the question, what can I do today? To multiply in another person the good that Jesus has given me and the good that Jesus wants to give them and help them realize. You see, purpose is about living in the present and multiplying good in others. Second, we need to really understand God's mission in order for us to understand and engage the simplicity of the purpose He gives us. Now, we could summarize that mission as relationships are the mission, and I guess we have. It's on the wall, right? But let me illustrate that in a little bit of a way that I haven't before. And then we're going to move on and look at some other biblical passages to define that even more simply for us further. Our church and our society tends to influence change and influence people through education and information, right? But very few of us here 
can point to a really good concert or a lecture that made significant life change in our lives. Even if you can point to a moment in time like that, typically the reason that made a life change, such a dramatic life change for you is because of your relationship with the person speaking or because of the relationships of the people who got you to the point to be ready to hear that and then walked you through living that out, right? Our lives change because of healthy relationship, healthy, ongoing, grace-filled, empowering, encouraging relationships. So if we want to influence Columbus, which I want to do and I think all of us want to do, right? This is how we will look at it to remain simple and focused and powerful and making real lasting change. Just a little graphic illustration. If all of us were to pray for our five and we'd each see one of our five in the next year or so come to faith, can we start the animation? There it'll go. It's just going to simply multiply because we give our lives away, because we do good each day to people, because God is already at work in their life, and they simply begin to come to faith. It's not because of what I'm going to do here and what I'm going to speak, although hopefully that will be a part of helping that. It's going to be because each one of us gives our lives away and invites. And the reality is if we want to make a difference in Columbus and we want to make a difference among the poor of Columbus, it's going to happen because we reach our friends and our friends reach our friends. And eventually the poor of Columbus are our friends. And they're here in the church with us in long-term, healthy, grace-filled, empowering, encouraging relationships that change lives. Now, the Bible goes on beyond that and talks about some other ways that we can apply the simplicity of this focus in our life. And it describes, the Bible describes our, your and my mission in three different ways. First, it describes it to us as a mission of seeking. In Luke 19.10, says Jesus' relationship to mission is this. He says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. There's something intentional in that statement, right? There's this focus on seeking. There's focus on initiative to pursue daily initiating relationships of kindness and grace and healing and all sorts of things. But all too often we look at in the church relational evangelism and we think, well, if I just live a good enough life, that life then somebody eventually will ask me a question. And that's fine, but Jesus' posture is much more intentional than that. Jesus also defines whom we're seeking as the lost. Now, I know I've talked to plenty of people who aren't convinced of their faith and they don't necessarily feel lost. And some of them feel offended by that term. And I understand why. But let's look at what the word actually means. And not just what it means as far as a raw definition, but what it means defined within the context of relationship in the Bible. The definition of that word lost could also be translated ruined or rendered useless. Now, to me that sounds like a definition of the effects of sin in our life. Sin is not this abstract, arbitrary rule that we must live up to. Sin are actions or behaviors or words or thoughts or emotions that bring damage to the beauty of who God created us to be and who God created other people to be. The Bible goes on and talks about this uh, whole idea of lostness in other terms, too. And Paul uses things like, he says, our thoughts are darkened. In other words, we're unable to see clearly. Our heart and our mind, in essence, he's saying, are out of focus a lot of times. 
It also talks about this idea of lost, of being distanced from God or alienated from God. And we can all relate to that, right? I mean, we've all been in that place where we've done something or we don't feel worthy of God's presence, so we hold Him at a distance, right? We've all felt that. The opposite idea to being lost is to know God. And the, and the, and the Bible uses the Greek word gnosis to describe that. It's not just a belief type of knowing. It's also an experiential type of knowing, a relational knowing. But still, I think at least for me, and maybe for you, that leaves it still a little bit heady until we understand God's heart toward us in our lostness. Luke 15 is this amazing passage. Jesus is, says, basically is saying to us in this passage, it's so important for us to understand this idea of lostness that Jesus uses three stories back to back to illustrate this. He uses the story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. And Jesus, in using these stories, starts out by placing the highest of all values on our effort and our focus on reaching out to what he says in, that, in the first parable is the one out of the hundred that has gone lost. Ninety-nine are not lost. There's only one that's lost. And we see in this story the shepherd trekking through the wilderness with this intensity of searching and persistence in searching. And Jesus basically raises in that parable for us the value of what I said earlier. We make the greatest, most lasting difference in people one friend at a time. Can you imagine the power of the stories of faith that we would hear a year from now if each of us had just one of the five we're praying for experience God in a real, meaningful way, in a way that brought the freedom and the healing or the peace that we know is possible because we've experienced it in our relationship with Jesus. Jesus reinforces this idea of lostness through the woman losing her coin. And we see in this image that he gives to us this unceasing, this careful, this this looking and cleaning every nook and cranny of her home until she finds it. And then she bursts into joy because she's found it, right? And Jesus equates that by saying this at the end of it. He says, in the same way, I tell you there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner, a person who's lost, who repents, who is found. But Jesus doesn't stop there. In the prodigal son, he goes on and, he, and Jesus shows us this intense love of a father. The son completely, foolishly rejects him and squanders all of his wealth, all of his dignity, all of his honor, right? And then he comes home and we see this powerful picture as he comes sheepishly home in desperation of the father running. He doesn't wait. He doesn't walk. He runs. Now, you all know the sappy movers, movies of two lovers running in slow motion to each other and everybody's heart swells and you all cry, right? I mean, this is, this is the ultimate of that story in real life, in reality. The son expecting, deserving of being demeaned. And the father runs to him. Doesn't bring up the failure of the sin. Hugs him, holds him, clothes him with honor, and celebrates relationship restored. You see, the heart of lost in the Bible is not demeaning. It's not they're clueless or they're anti-God. Rather, lost is something treasured. 
something valuable that is missing, something longed for, deeply longed for and pursued, a person who, is great, who God greatly misses, whose spirit is constantly, intensely at work trying to reach them by their love. And when we understand that, we can expect then that the five that we're praying for and the people we run across every single day, God is already at work in each one of them. You can expect that the Spirit of God is already pursuing them, already active. And God will be there whether you feel like it or not in the moment. God will be there empowering the things you do, empowering the words you say, empowering the prayers you give, because nothing is more important than seeking and restoring relationship. Living through the mission of multiplying God's life in other people's one person at a time is our mission. The Bible goes on and talks about it further. It uses the idea that our mission is also a mission of reconciliation. And there's a passage, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, we'll start at. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, we could preach for several weeks on this passage alone. We could talk about this not counting people's sins against them and how that changes and how that shapes the way we look at people and our behavior towards people if we're following Christ. We could talk about the idea of the new creation and the newness and the freedom that God's presence brings to our lives. We could talk about the fact that the text says we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. That means you. Every single one of you who is a follower of Christ, you have the authority and the power of God behind you. You have God's character, the character that makes our ability to trust His promise sure behind you in your efforts to pray for and see God impact the five people in your life. But we're going to focus today just on the word reconciliation. What does it mean for us as individuals And as a church, to reconcile people, to reconcile ourselves, and to reconcile others to that original spectacular good that God created us to be and He intends for our lives. Now, the definition of reconciliation is is fairly simple. It's restoring relationship where there is estrangement, where there's alienation, where there's corruption, whether that corruption is because of our own sin or because of the pain of somebody else's sin or just the fact of living in a sinful, fallen world where there's corruption to restore right relationship. Or reconciliation is also restoring relationship where there's outright enmity. And it's talked about in the Bible both in a vertical sense between God and man and in a horizontal sense between us and other people and between us and creation, that God wants us to do all that. Now, obviously, the horizontal reconciliation doesn't work as well or as deeply without a relationship with God being right. 
right? We've talked about it in the past. The most important thing in life is how you view God. It affects hope. It affects your character. It affects your idea of what's beautiful, what's right, what's good, and your purpose. It affects all of it. How you view God affects everything in your life. Clearly, leading people to faith in Christ is the most important Reconciliation, the Bible as it talks about, puts a priority on that vertical reconciliation, but it also clearly and loudly talks about setting things right between individuals, between communities, between humanity and nature. All of creation, the Bible says, has been alienated from right relationship because of the effects of sin. So what are the practical implications of a call for reconciliation where we live today in Northeast Columbus. There are so many relationships, things that we could do where we could bring good news through reconciling. Think about a few possibilities. What if we were to be such a kind people that we would reach in relationship across social and ethnic divides? What might that look like? Well, it might look like More of you deciding to volunteer as mentors in our youth group, helping youth and teens transition through that time period when clicks can be so damaging and instead helping them learn to have really good, healthy relationships during that time. It might look like uh, us being involved and you volunteering as a mentor at Challenge Day in New Albany schools or Westerville schools or one of the other schools around here where the whole day is about helping people, uh, helping the youth of our schools learn to not bully and to have really healthy relationships. It might look like, well, most of our kids, the, the, the majority of our kids who are part of our church here go to New Albany schools, but we have people from lots of different schools, and so there's a, a really good representation. But what that might look like is us reaching out to some northern Columbus schools or some Westerville schools that have a high population of at-risk kids where we have no self-interest because we don't have very many kids, if any kids, that go there and deciding to be tutors, deciding to bless those schools, reaching across normal boundaries of alienation to be a blessing. That's what it might look like. We have people right now in our church who are trying to learn to reach across boundaries of, of, of Muslim and Hindu barriers by learning about those cultures and trying to establish friendly relationships with people where faith can become part of the conversation in a respectful way. It might also look like continuing to reconcile ourselves and our community to a longing each and every one of us has. Every single one of us wants to be a very generous person. Our clicker survey that we do at the beginning of the year, we've asked for three, four years in a row now a question, how many of you believe that God wants you to give more of your finances away to church or to charity than you currently give? And 75% of you approximately every year say, I believe God wants me to give more away. We live unreconciled right now to our beliefs in those areas. What if we reconciled our behavior to our values, to our beliefs, and we multiplied that in our community and became the most generous community in all of the United States. Wouldn't that be fun? Can you imagine all the good, fun, impact things that we'd be able to be a part of if we did that? Now, we've made really actually good progress as a church, haven't we? We've made progress, but we still have a ways to go. 
and our communities still have a ways to go. I was on philanthropy.com, a website that uh, talks about this, and it has a compilation of studies from the census and other research studies on giving patterns. And if we just look at the three nearest zip codes to, to Quest, New Albany makes three times as much per capita per household than the nearest Columbus zip code to us, and yet is 20% less generous than that nearest zip code in Columbus. New Albany makes twice as much per capita income as Westerville, and yet Westerville 43081 is 30% more generous than New Albany. And before we think that this is a bashing, it's not. The reality is none of these three zip codes are anything but below average to very, very slightly above average in their giving patterns. What would it be like if God worked in us and multiplied through us a kind of generosity that was unmatched anywhere in the United States? Wouldn't that be fun? That would require things like still remaining committed to going through Financial Peace University and learning to manage our money really well. We got our next Financial Peace University class coming up on May 4th. You'll be hearing about that the next few weeks and be able to sign up for that. It would require that we all continue to fight against the temptation of avarice and we live more simple lives, making room for generosity. And it would continue that we, it, w- it would mean that we have to continue to stay focused on giving above and beyond to things like quest care and warm and, and reaching out and not just giving of our money, but giving of our time and giving of our prayer and asking God to bring people into our life who are in need and then us being able to submit quest care applications or help them navigate form or, or get back on their feet because of loving and caring relationship here. It would also look like maybe more people deciding to lead small groups like some of the people who are right now beginning to lead marriage courses and marriage groups and people who are being trained and starting to lead grief share groups and to help those who are recovering from grief. It would, it would require some of us deciding to maybe be focused and get training to help people recover from substance abuse. And for the rest of us, it might, it might include just stepping up and being more intentional to invite our unchurched friends to barbecues with some of our friends who are followers so we begin to establish those relationships with an intentionality. We don't wait. We seek actively to establish those things. It's all about relationship. Changing lives one person at a time by becoming friends with one person at a time. It's simple to be focused. It's simple to make a dramatic impact multiplying the reconciliation, the good that God has done in our lives one life at a time instead of just dispensing ideas and ideals. The third way that the Bible talks about this simplicity of purpose and mission is through this. It's a mission of healing. Acts 10 says, You know what happened in Judea and Galilee, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the, with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil but because God was with him. No. Texas saying Jesus was doing good. He was relieving the pain of all who suffered various kinds of things from physical to demonic oppression to the broader sense of oppression of evil in our culture, evil in our families, structures, evil in our religion, our ideas about that, evil in our communities. Jesus' work was far more than placing a, a, 
a fire insurance ticket in somebody's hand to heaven. Even though heaven is a beautiful reality, we don't talk about enough. Jesus' work was to relieve the distressed, the broken, the suffering in tangible ways. What might be the implications of Jesus' healing ministry through us in Northeast Columbus? Now, living in this time of history where the Bible describes it as the kingdom of God is breaking in but not yet fully realized is a really interesting and a perplexing time for us, isn't it? I mean, just in the past month or so, we've had people who have been prayed for and healed miraculously, and we've been had people who were prayed for and died. And that can be interesting and perplexing, isn't it? With that kind of experience of the kingdom being now and not yet, we have a choice. We have a choice to constantly get caught in the arguments of that mystery and why now and why didn't it happen here and all those things that play with our emotions and cause us to go through up and down, ups and downs and become disillusioned and eventually lead us to wanting to pray less for people and take less faith risks or we can recognize the reality of the now and the not yet and we can choose to act in faith. We can choose to continue to pray regularly and get to experience the miracles when they happen. See, it's all about relationship. How many of you here understand that God is your Father? And as we think about that from, the natural, from being a natural child, we carry the DNA of our parents, and, and likewise we bear, we bear the DNA of our Father in whose image we're made. God's nature is missional. For God so loved the world that He sent sent His Son to us. Jesus came to be with us, living among us, sitting at our tables and eating our food, walking the dirty streets with us, building our furniture and some of our houses with us, and sleeping in our mangers and our beds. This, so, so it's in your DNA to be a missional people. You are by nature sent to multiply God's good in other people. So what does that look like? It looks like some of the things we said, but it looks like Jesus in John 4 on a business trip. Tired, thirsty, sits down by a well, and a woman who nobody else would talk to who is an outcast, he decides to talk to, and because of kind relationship above differences and across boundaries of alienation, an entire city becomes a follower of Jesus, and many lives are impacted. And it's just along the way on a business trip. John 8, Jesus is teaching and he's interrupted by this call for justice to this, against this woman who is clearly in the wrong. The law of her day said she should be cast out if not put to death. She's clearly in the wrong and instead of creating alienation, he creates identification between her and him, between her and the crowd. And he says, he who is without sin, be the first to cast a stone. And by simply giving love and forgiveness when she and everyone else around knew that she was not worthy of it, the beauty radically changes lives. It's powerful to be a part of Christ's mission. Who do you pass by each day where an out-of-the-ordinary act of kindness, of prayer with them, of love might impact them? You know, the vision of actually helping the poor of Columbus is continually increasing through us at Quest. And I know there's a lot of passion in many of your hearts to make a bigger difference in that. It is happening and increasing through Quest Care. It's happening through our increased involvement in WARM, and I want to keep increasing those things. But it will happen dramatically through us. 
when we multiply friendships and our friends become the poor and we make significant, generation-changing, life-changing difference because we know them. They live with us. They worship with us. And we love them to change. It'll happen by each of us praying and responding to God's answer to our leap of faith question. How do you want me, God, through quest to further the peace and prosperity of our community? God wants to answer that question for each and every one of us in this room to connect you to mission with those he is saying the same thing to here among us. You see, if we trust the core verse of our series, if we trust the fact that we are God's poem, we are God's gift, we are God's masterpiece through which good works prepared in advance are already set out for us to make a difference, that means he's been preparing you And that means He's been preparing your context, the people around you, for your specific brand of good that only you as a person can give to bring change to somebody's life. He's already set it up. He set you up. He set the context up. All we have to do is walk into that and bring the unique, natural, appropriate, personalized gift you were made for to those God has placed in your life. I want to pause here for a moment and invite uh, Scott Marrier and Mary Lutz to join me. Would you welcome them? And we'll take any questions you may have for a couple minutes. All right. First question. I'm not sure I know enough to be an ambassador for Jesus. Where does that lead? I think that leaves you in a great place <laughs> because you need direction then. And uh, left to ourselves to identify where we're to go, we'll always be lost. The pattern of uh, Scripture that we see both in the Old and New Testament is that God creates, man sins, God redeems. I think in this question, God is in the redemption business and directing us how He's calling us out, whatever sin we might be. And we're charged to follow. It's not a matter of knowledge. I think it's a matter of obedience. Because he makes himself available through everyday things, whether it's through a message that you read in his word. Maybe it's a message you see in one of your friends or some of his people. Maybe it's a, something that you see in, in nature and his creation. Maybe you see it's something in the miracle of the last second shot that breaks your team's heart. Because he moves in a different way. We can find God in anything and in everything because he's always at work. Yeah. And that question betrays something that I run into all the time. No matter how many times we talk about messages like this, we talk about the fact that our ability to reach people has very little to do with how much academic knowledge we have or how much Bible knowledge we have, although we want everybody to learn that. It's really healthy for us to learn that, right? It has to do with the life of God and you loving and caring and sharing what you know. If you don't know the Romans road and the way to lead somebody to a faith decision in Christ, but you know that Jesus is real, then just share what you know. And that's what brings reconciliation. And it really has less to do with your answers than than with your ability to demonstrate that God loves me in all my messed upness. And that's the real good news. Not my answers to the tough questions. 
the Great Commission is to go and make disciples. Perhaps the better translation of that is, as you are going, make disciples. So wherever we go, whatever we do, that's what we're all about. Now, people play basketball um, for the love of the game, especially in college or pros or whatever. But even younger folks play basketball for the love of the game. We're involved in a game as well um, for the love of the world. We play so that the world will know, people around us, that there's always room for more on our team. That's what it's about. And it's, you can go anywhere and love people, right? Mm-hmm. Next question, a combination of a few. Uh, you mentioned people you know that aren't sure of faith but don't feel lost. I have friends like that too. My friends even say they don't feel the need for Jesus or faith at all. Do we need to prove the need to them somehow? How do you prove they need Jesus if they're already happy? There is a, a God-shaped space inside of all of us. If we're really honest, in our, in our quiet moments, in those moments of being still, we're really aware of that. And sometimes it's just about sharing your story of how you came to understand how only God could fill that space. Not anything else, not anyone else. Um, you know, I think in a situation like this, we have to think and recognize that the pressure's off. It's not mm-hmm. about what we know. It's not about what we have to prove. Mm-hmm. There is this being of God called the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And the Bible clearly tells, tells us that Jesus, through Jesus, he draws all men to the Father. I think we should pay more attention to our own behavior what we believe, and how we show that, and how we demonstrate that. One of, some of the best evidence of a life transformed is your life. When we live as redeemed people, it, it advertises, it broadcasts more than we could ever say, more than we could ever prove. Mm-hmm. So I think as we love our neighbor as ourselves, you know, if we, if we demonstrate what, what the Bible tells us, to love God, Mm-hmm. And, to, and to love our neighbor, they'd see that. Because naturally what they're going to see in you is something that they don't have. Mm-hmm. And it is only the Holy Spirit that is ever going to reveal that and ever going to convict their heart that truly they have to find something else more than what they have, particularly in our culture that we call this happiness or this fulfillment. Well, let's take it out of the context of what they don't have, too, and put it in the context of what they do have. If we believe, if we believe that the Holy Spirit is pursuing them, which we talked about in today's message, and is actively involved in their life, has designed them for a God-ordained purpose, then even before they are a Christian, he is working that into their life. That means that some of the things they're doing are in line with that. I remember Wendy... Uh, years ago, having a conversation with uh, one of her very good friends who was about as far from God as you can imagine in her lifestyle and behavior and every other way and just not really for it at all. And yet, there were things at times that God actually dramatically spoke to, to through her to others. And all Wendy did was say, God spoke through you right now. She laughed, but it became a consideration I wonder if God's already involved in my abilities here and my success, right? Yeah, there's this promise that if we're faithful to lift God up, Jesus up on this earth, that they will draw people to themselves. So we lift 
he draws. But like Scott said, we aren't in the proving business. We are in the leading and pointing to the Holy Spirit business. Mm -hmm. We are the people who say, that's God in your life. And they'll go, maybe not. But a lot of times it is, right? And helping them identify God is what we want them to do. He'll he'll do the proving for us. I'm reminded about uh, John the Baptist. Maybe we're called to be more like John the Baptist than Christ. We all have this savior complex, right? We all want to save everybody. We want to do something well. We want to do this stuff that provides transformation in people's lives. But John the Baptist had a completely different sense. He had a completely different mission. What did he do? He pointed the way to Christ. He says, I am not the savior, but there is one that's greater. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's a pretty good role model for us to follow, is we are not the Christ. We are not the redeemers. Mm-hmm. We are not the saviors. But there is one. And we can point the way. Dusty, we may have time for one more if it's a short one. Yeah, well, it's a short-ish. Short-ish. Um, <laughs> short-ish. I, love I couldn't help but notice on your map all the green dots that were headed southeast and inside 270. Is there a meaning or a meaning or a goal to that illustration, or was it just an example? Uh, are we shooting for those communities specifically? Oh, can I talk about the demographics? Go ahead. The Brookings Institute out of Washington, D.C. has been mapping the movement of poverty throughout the United States for the last 25 years, and they're probably the foremost experts in in tracking that. What they've found is that the issues of poverty, the issues of spiritual brokenness, are migrating to the suburbs suburbs at a rate that's faster faster than or equal to where it's growing in the inner city. And the reality of that is need is as mobile as the rest of our society. Years back, you used to be able to put a community center in a geographic location in the inner city, and it would impact the blocks around. But today, with the mobility of our culture and our society, that's no longer true. They're migrating out to the suburbs. They're coming to New Albany and Westville and the Canna and, and Worthington and Dublin and those areas. Why? Because they're looking for better schools. They're looking for jobs and opportunity. They're looking for better houses. They migrated to the suburbs for the same reason you and I did, is they're looking for a better life, a better change. So the concentration is migrating out, and I think that the demographics that we saw on the map is an illustration, but you don't have to go very far to find people in need. Within Westerville, which is a community that, that I tend to work in a lot, 35% of the children that attend the Westerville City Schools participate in a government-sponsored feeding program, which means they live at 180 degrees or below the federal poverty guideline. In Westerville, Ohio, and you go, what? Really? So poverty is a no respecter of persons. It's a no respecter of geography. And you don't have to go to Detroit to find me. You don't have to go to the inner city of Columbus to find me. Look down your street. Look within your school context. Look, look around at work. You're going to see it. I mean, all of us have probably been impacted in some way with a friend, a relative, a neighbor who has been impacted, who has lost their job or suffered some catastrophic illness or a death in their family, which has turned their lives upside down. So it's not limited to poverty either. We all have this, this tremendous need in, in, uh, in grief. Uh, I just think about an example. I have two contrasts in the last two weekends. Last weekend, I went to one of my close friends' um, father's funeral, and they were dealing with all this need of grief, tremendous grief. Yesterday, I officiated a wedding, and it was the total opposite spectrum of the, of the relationship that they were experiencing in that. What I found though, as I looked at the faces of the people who were present, they were all on this continuum of 
some dealing with grief, some dealing with the question that they wish they had the joy of the newlyweds, mm-hmm. but they were all seeking. At a California college uh, several years ago, a home um, team was playing a game. This particular team was favored to win their conference, and they were even ranked in the nation. So they were kind of spinning well on all cylinders, as they say. But on, in this particular game, this evening game, they were losing by a wide margin at halftime. It was well over 20 points, which in a basketball game is, is not a good sign. And the team collected in the locker room. They were collectively braced for some pretty strong words from the coach. The coach walked in, put the clipboard down on the bench, and looked around and made eye contact with each player on the team. And then she asked two questions. Who are you people? Where did you get those uniforms? That's pretty powerful. If you think about our cleanup day yesterday on the campus that Dusty referred to earlier, and how many people were here in every room, um, on every piece of the property outside, doing all kinds of things, working together for the good of our team. How much more, if we were focused players, not just spectators, could we do for the good of the community? Thank you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap this up and head towards a video, a video close that, that I want to do in just a second here, but let me just address that last question from my perspective. I've wrestled for years with the idea that we uh, were a church that was originally planted to target New Albany. But the reality is we are a Westerville address and we're right on the corner. And I feel like the way God has blessed us, he's brought people from all the communities. And for some reason, I think he wants us to be a bridge. So the intentionality, yes, there was some intentionality in those dots. Because I hear a lot of passion among many of you to reach the poor. And I hear a lot of passion among you to help uh, a wealthier community that we live in, many of us, to be even more impactful and purposeful and generous. And I think um, God may be leading us to expand our boundaries. I know for me, my boundaries go way beyond that. I envision us someday planting dozens and dozens and dozens of churches and campuses and reaching tons of people, but we're going to do it by relationship. As we spread as we get relationship, as we develop friends and really deeply impact people's lives, we will plant or we will start new campuses. And I I do think I've been praying about and waiting to see if God stirs in other people's hearts the whole, uh, both Jeremy and I were praying a little bit and others were praying, feeling like God may be leading us. We've had most of our emphasis New Albany way. We're not going to stop that, but wanting to expand west and southwest. I feel like God may be leading us that way. So I'm waiting to hear confirmation of that from how he speaks to you in answering that leap of faith question. What is God putting on my heart to be a part of? And when God brings the right people to start that, we will know it's time to do it. That's part of the way we hear God as a group, right? When God stirs enough of our hearts for the right thing, then we know it's time to do that. So to close, I want you to let God speak to you through a portion of one of the greatest dreams and greatest moments of the last century. And I know this may seem like a little bit of uh, bravado, but it really is a dream of reconciliation. And I think God wants to speak to us through it. So would you take a moment just to listen to this? I have a dream that one day 
this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the Red Hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood? I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama, with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is the faith that I go back to the South with. We can look at that as a really inspiring speech. But the reality of it is that was just the voice of an inspiring person who put into words the fact that neighbor went to neighbor and said, would you risk going counterculture to me and making a stand and doing something that would make a difference? It was friends, grabbing friends, and going out to risk together to sit in the wrong part of the bus or to march and make a difference. And while our going to friends may look very different than that, it's us grabbing friends, leading them to Christ, and finding out how God wants to reconcile our world around us today. That's, what, 50 years ago? Certainly there's a lot of reconciliation left to be done there, but but really think about the impact. Think about the impact that that's made. Think about the impact that if we stay focused on relationship, if we stay focused on friends reconciling friends and banding together with other friends to bring reconciliation, how much difference we could make in central Ohio in this world. 
I want you to just pause for a moment. I just want you to pray as the music plays, and they'll, they'll lead us in a moment in song. And ask God, again, what's the dream you have for us? And what's the dream for you have for me in this moment to be simply a part of your mission? I want to pause and, and respond to any thoughts or questions. And to join me, I, I want to invite Scott Marrier and uh, Mary Lutz to join me. We've been teasing Mary that she's always doing basketball or, or, or sports things, so she had to bring a prop today. Very good. Our first is actually more of a comment, uh, but it says, I feel too messed up to tell anyone they should want the God I love. I'm no example of freedom or faith. What's, what are your guys' thoughts on that statement? Here's the deal. You are assuming that the good news is how cleaned up you are. The good news is not that. The good news is how much God loves you right where you're at. And quite frankly, you have a huge testimony to share with others. And that's what other people want. You don't have to have the answers. You don't have to be cleaned up. I think that's the beauty of the Bible. If you read the Bible honestly, some of the greatest people of faith were pretty messed up. People. But they believed in God's love and they kept turning towards Him and they were used greatly by Him. You have a tremendous amount to give right where you're at. The Bible reminds us that they, whoever they are, everybody, people will know us that we're Christians by our love for one another. And so it starts certainly with our relationship with God, but also with our relationships horizontally here within the life of the body. Um, a good basketball team, it's fun to watch. It's effortless. It's amazing when people are passing at the right times and, and understanding the gifts that each person brings to the team and, and how they work together. The, word is, the world is hungry to, to see that kind of magic happen. And it, it can happen here. Part of our challenge, though, is not seeing the church staff as the team and everybody else as spectators in the stands cheering. We are the team. We are the body of Christ. And, and we, like basketball players, play for the love of the game. We play for the love of the world so that everybody will see that there's always room for more on our team. I, I took notes from the first service. And uh, first of all, I would say you're in really good company because we're all messed up. So you're not really that exclusive. Um, second thing I guess I'd say is it's not about you. Uh, we oftentimes try to make the gospel about us. And it's about the Redeemer. And third, if you're paying attention to the message, there's this aspect of seeking, reconciliation, and healing. Mm -hmm. And so I think your commentary is you're no example of freedom or faith. But God is in the midst of something in your life. And I don't know who wrote the question. But let me just speak prophetically for a second. God is in the midst of doing something in your life that you're only now becoming aware of. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's this aspect of you're seeking him in a new way. He's bringing about transformation in your life. Maybe he's in the midst of reconciling you so that you do become a great example of freedom or faith to others mm -hmm. because you're his beloved. And if we could just get in touch with the grandeur of God's love for us, 
how we be transformed. And, uh, and then that third aspect is, well, God's at work in your life right now. Today is the third point of Ross's message, and that's this, this healing. Mm-hmm. And we're in the redemption season, right, with Lent. And, mm-hmm. So it's top of mind awareness. But I believe what God's doing in your life today is that aspect of healing and redemption. Mm-hmm. Another question, Dusty? Yep. I have some friends that say they believe in Jesus and have an active faith. As far as I can tell, they live it out. But they don't believe in being too committed to one church. I think they feel it holds them back. Are they still lost? If so, what do we do to reach them? I think this is why they have resisted some of my invites to Quest. Yes, I mean, that's the reason Paul actually says in that 2 Corinthians 5 that... that, uh, He's actually talking not just to the unsaved there. He's talking to the church in, in, Corinthian, in Corinth saying, Be, I implore you, be reconciled. All of us are constantly going through reconciliation with God. It's not just a one-time thing. And the reality is, and we'll actually deal with this in our next series after Easter, the reality is God has placed community and relationship and the church as the vehicle for that. It is not possible to be a wholly committed disciple of Jesus and not be involved in intentional relationship called the church. Whether it's an institutional church or whether it's a church that doesn't have a corporation attached to it, doesn't matter. It has to be the church. It's not possible to follow God thoroughly and experience what he has and all the good he has without being in the church. So yes, there's a lack of focus there still. But I understand it. I mean, you and I probably have all experienced churches where I wouldn't want to be a part of them, right? Mm-hmm. And there's wounding, there's healing that needs to take place. There's many churches that are all about religion and not relationship. They're all about rules, and they have done a lot of damage to all of us. So, If you were privileged to be here yesterday for part of the cleanup day that Dusty referred to earlier, it was really fun. And uh, some of the staff played key roles in preparing lists of things that need, needed to be done. Greg and Mandy, I know, worked hard on that and probably everybody else as well. But sometimes we don't commit to a church because we don't see a place for us and our gifts in the life of the body and what that church is about and what they're doing. Again, when we're working together... And yesterday was a great example of that. There were probably over 100 people here from the very young and short to the very tall. We got a lot accomplished outside and inside because we worked together and everybody did something that they felt like, hey, I can do this. I can can make a difference here. You know, what makes me think about this is first, I'm really glad that Jesus was too committed to the church, aren't you? <laughs> um, so, so that's kind of a standard that we see. Um, you know, second of all, we think it holds us back. Well, isn't that part of our Western mentality, this lonely ranger mentality, that it's just God and me? And yet our lack of understanding of what biblical community truly is, is confounding. Um, you know, particularly today in social media, we have the ability to say, I have 600 friends on Facebook, okay? But I'd have a difficult time identifying six people I'd want to carry in my casket because they're not close enough to me. 
Isn't that absurd? And so life in the church is lived life on life. Um, it's not just this theme because we want to be able to build a big church that we talk about it being um, all about relationship. God so loved is all about relationship. And so, um, you know, and, and, and how do we, how do we, uh, what do we do in, in, in the difference of that? I think the proof is in the pudding there. I think in our own lives we demonstrate that through a commitment with one another, and in good times and in bad, um, I, I officiated a wedding yesterday, and some of the vows are in sickness and in health and death to us part. Um, we say that when we get married, but we don't really mean that as we fellowship with church because of the first sign of difficulty. We just change the channel. We leave. We go to another church. And isn't it interesting? Most of the people that I see that go from church to church to church, there's a common problem. <laughs> but it's not with the church. It's with that independent spirit that never wants to be submitted. Any type of spiritual discipline or, or discipleship or connection because of what it might bring. And, uh, and yet, Scripture tells us the exact opposite. That when we truly surrender our lives, when we truly love God and love one another, our lives are transformed. And the expression of our community, the expression of our church, will be so attractive that people will learn to see what we're experiencing because they'll see the authenticity of Christ in our faith. Not a religiosity that Ross was talking about before, but a true identity to know what it really means to be in fellowship with one another and truly be part of this thing called the bride, the church, Christ's bride. And, and I, for one, think that's pretty compelling. The, the most winsome invitation in the New Testament is come and see. Come and see. You'll, you'll find a place at my church. Come and see. We all have a part to play. Come and see. Thank you. I think we're, because I must have been a little more verbose, we're running a little late. So I think we're going to call the questions closed right there. Thank you. Yes, yes. At a California college, several years ago, a women's basketball game was being played. The home team was favored to win by a wide margin. They were even ranked in the nation at this point. So they were playing well together. But on this particular game one evening, they were losing by a wide margin at, at halftime, well over 20 points. That's a lot in a basketball game. Things were not going well. The team assembled in the locker room at halftime, collectively braced for some pretty strong words from the coach. The coach walked into the locker room and made eye contact with each player on the team and then asked two questions. Who are you people? Where did you get those uniforms? What kind of a community would it be if we all played our parts, played our roles, much like the group that assembled yesterday to take care of the inside and the outside of the church? There were people in every room. There were people all over the, the parking lot and in the flower beds and all over the back of the church. What kind of a picture would that give our community of the body of Christ if we all work together? Thank you. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at go to quest.org.